Thank you, Chris. I've been lucky enough to have Chris and Betsy and Scout in our small group, and that's been so lovely. Because if you guys haven't met Scout, their little two-year-old, oh my gosh, she is like delightful. And actually, I, I appreciated Chris's sharing from a couple of standpoints here, so I'm just going to kind of vamp a little bit here, Chris, off of that. One is it, it's like still breaks my heart, just like all of the fallout of what happens when we Christians like can't quite get along or can't open our arms wide enough, you know, and that it's a pain that keeps going and that it, you know, it grieves me as it grieves all of us. Um, but also hearing just like one year, you know, just saying, gosh, at this point in my life, I just feel tired. <laughs> you know, we just moved, we've got a small kid and you feel like that even when things are going on in church and it just feels like sometimes all of our lives can start to feel like that, especially if you're in that young family stage of life. I think people feel especially sort of um, almost like there's like a clamp around you and you can't sleep. I've been thinking about it a little bit this week because I tend to get a little bit in my head about like some of the political situations and some of the different things going on like up in this level out there. And then I go back to Indianapolis and I visit with like my family and my dad um, suffers from dementia and then he's got some back issues that have, have made it hard for him to get around. You know, and then I enter into their world and my mom's primarily a caregiver at this point. And I just think, man, sometimes there's just no space in life to even think about that stuff out there. You know, because I like to fight with them about politics a little bit. If you don't know, we're kind of on polar opposite ends and I love my parents. Um, but just realizing that there's just stages of life when you've got maybe a medical condition that comes up or maybe your kids are in travel sports or whatever it is that's going on that makes it difficult for us to just sort of stop and breathe and to create experience for God to be had right there in the middle of all of the fog and the busyness. You know, it's, it's like this question of like, can we even touch the eternal in the midst of all of that? Can we get a sense of our connection with both the divine as well as with sort of that larger narrative of God at work in the world? And so a book that I've been chewing on actually over several months is the book of Ecclesiastes. I read it through, I think last winter, and I was thinking that maybe I would do a sermon series on it and then decided not to. But I'd ordered some Jewish commentaries and I'd been sort of reading up on it. And as I was thinking through this week, I was like, gosh, I think this actually has something to say to us in this sermon series that we're doing on savoring life. So we've been talking a lot about Sabbath and of rest and of winsomeness and of trying to find some, like the lightness of what it means to follow Jesus, right? Where he said, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. You know, so if there are practices and things that we're doing that are not bringing us life, that maybe we can reevaluate those things. And so this is where I found the book of Ecclesiastes helpful personally. And so we're going to just talk about that book sort of as a whole today, which is a lot because it's 12 chapters. We won't go through it all, but I'm going to give sort of a big picture of what it's saying. So some of you may or may not have ever read Ecclesiastes. It's a book in the Old Testament. I remember reading it as a kid because I was one of those weird kids that read through the Bible a few times, but I didn't understand it. And then I picked it up again after college. And I was a liberal arts major. I majored in history for my undergrad. I actually got accepted to Taylor. I almost went to Taylor, <laughs> funny enough. Um, and so I picked it up, coming from this sort of postmodern philosophy and, and liberal arts you know, education that I've had. I'm of that generation where you're just steeped in postmodernism. And I remember reading Ecclesiastes and feeling like, gosh, this is like the first postmodern book ever written, only it was written like 3,000 years ago. So if you read 
through it, you get the feeling that the author doesn't believe that there's actually like any coherence to life in some spaces and that meaning is difficult to come by and he's sort of breaking down power structures and so the book feels a little bit angsty. And so just as a little bit of background, tradition holds that King Solomon wrote this book. It's considered part of the wisdom tradition. And the book is penned from the point of view of somebody who poses as a person who thinks themselves very wise, right? Or at least wants the readers to think that they are very wise, whether that's satire or not. And so the author presents themselves as sort of a sage, and Solomon had a reputation for being the wisest man in ancient Israel. And the first verse actually identifies the author, he calls himself a teacher, a son of David. And Solomon was the son of David. But all of that said, there's no scholarly reason to believe that Solomon is the actual author. But perhaps there was some advantage to people believing that Solomon was the author. Or perhaps there was an advantage to having people believe um, that there was some sort of artistic cultural comment being made by the actual author about the follies of being rich and of having wealth and of having power that they saw in the lives of their kings. But the bottom line is we probably will never know who wrote it or exactly why they wrote it, which is part of the intrigue of the book. Right? There's no agreed upon interpretation. There's not even an understanding really of why it's part of the biblical canon. I was reading some of the Jewish commentators and they, they said that they believe it was part of, it was really a product more of historical circumstances that led to Ecclesiastes being sort of included in the larger Hebrew scriptures than of like a deliberate theological choosing where they were looking for a theological coherence. That there were books that were in circulation at the time that were thought to have been from sort of the classical period were all sort of gathered up together. And because they thought Ecclesiastes may or may not have been written by Solomon, you know, they stitched it in there, and so it became part of the Hebrew scriptures. However, that said, the book has become very firmly embedded into the Jewish and Christian tradition for precisely the reason that we don't fully understand it, right? Part of the Jewish tradition says that we've gained wisdom really through arguing over different theological or philosophical concepts, and that the wisdom is found when you bring in multiple points of view that are looking at things from different angles. And so this book wouldn't have survived if it didn't contain you know, some interesting and some sound spiritual contributions, even if all the parts of it don't always internally agree, much less agree with some of the larger narratives or arcs of scripture. So for those of you who haven't read it, and maybe for those of you who have and need a little refresher, I'm just going to read the first 11 verses of this book, just to give you a little bit of a flavor of what it's like, and you'll see how angsty it feels to us in English here. The words of the teacher, capitalized teacher, right? Son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Thus saith the Lord. Just kidding. <laughs> what do people gain from all of their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and then it hurries back again to where it rises. And the wind blows to the south, and then it turns again to the north, and it goes round and around, ever returning on its course. And the streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea never seems to get full. To the place where the streams come from, there they return again, right? He's giving all of these circular pictures of the sun going around and the winds going around and the streams going around. And then he says, all things are wearisome. More than one can say, 
The eye never has enough of seeing nor the ear of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. We all know where this came from. There is nothing new under the sun. Right? That's an Ecclesiastes nugget of wisdom. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come won't be remembered by those who follow them. I mean, aren't you like, oh my gosh, we need to get this guy into some counseling, right? <laughs> you feel his existential crisis, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless, which resonated with me as like a 23-year-old right out of college. <laughs> the Hebrew word there, though, that's translated as meaningless is the word havel. And like many words, that word can be translated in multiple ways, depending on the context of the word and depending upon the judgment of the translator. The word itself literally means breath or vapor. It's breath or vapor. So on the one hand, the meaning of the word can convey meaninglessness or futility. It is used in that way sometimes. But on the other hand, it can mean something more akin to fleeting, vapor. And meaninglessness and vapor are two different concepts. Right? My time with my dad is fleeting, but it's not meaningless. Right? Your time with your kids growing up in your house is fleeting, but it's not without purpose. And so many Hebrew scholars feel that Ecclesiastes is actually better understood when we use the word fleeting or ephemeral or vapor in place of the English translation, which is almost always translating meaningless. So then if you go back and you reread those first verses with that translation, I think it sounds a little bit different. Fleeting, fleeting, says the teacher, utterly fleeting. Everything is like vapor. What do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. It's not that human labor or human existence is meaningless and void. It's that it feels like a swift second in the context of the entirety of history, right? Generations come and generations go while the earth remains. And the earth holds its stories like a treasure chest. I remember, I mean, there's a few times that this has happened in my life, but very particularly, I remember being up north in the UP at Pictured Rock National Park. I don't know if any of you guys have been up there or camped up there. There's a little lake shore that you can go down to at night. And you know, in the UP, you can just see the stars like, like nowhere else. And I remember being with some friends, we've been camping, and we're laying on that beach and just looking up at all of those stars, and that does give you a little existential crisis. You know, where you realize, one of those little brief moments in your life where you realize you're just this tiny speck on this tiny piece of rock in the middle of a smallish galaxy in the middle of a universe that is still expanding, making us ever smaller. And so in many ways, I think the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes is about transience. It's about how things don't last. It's about putting things in perspective, right? It's like taking a zoomed-in camera and zooming it back out so that we can see human crisis in the perspective of the whole. And the author would say, yes, injustice is awful, and pain and grief and sickness, they're horrid and they're real, and we have to live in that realness 
And we have to experience God in that realness, right? His name is Emmanuel, God with us, right? The idea of Christianity is that God is with us in all of that muck and mess. And yet, the author of Ecclesiastes challenges us to believe that there's a certain peace and a certain release of anxiety that we can you know, just touch barely on those moments when we let ourselves step back and meditate on the vapor that composes both human problems and human endeavors. Now, the author is telling us, look, these things, they feel like they're overwhelming and they're real and it's not that they're not, but they're also fleeting. And in the end, God's justice and God's presence prevails over all of this. And that God's justice and presence and wisdom is more real and more non-fleeting than all of life, all of that vapor summed up, both the good and the bad. So this wise old teacher tells us, he says, look, I've had wealth and pleasure, and in the end, it goes away. I've had wisdom, and I've worked hard, but in the end, that too goes away. He said, look, I've, I've been an oppressor, and I've been oppressed. Now, he doesn't fully own that. He talks about owning slaves, right? But he says, look, that stuff is real. I've experienced it, and I'm part of it, and that shall pass away too to await the judgment of God. And he mentions that, this sort of leaving things in the end to the judgment of God four times. And he actually ends the entire book with it. He ends with this. He says, okay, now that everything has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. Yes, tell us, teacher. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all humankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Right? So in other words, the author of Ecclesiastes is challenging us to trust that in the end, everything will be made right. Now, there are numerous ways that rabbis and pastors and philosophers have interpreted this book, right? So some of them look at this and they believe that the author is telling us that we should withdraw from all of the things of the earth, that we should withdraw from the complexities of life. There are certainly segments of Christian culture, there are certainly segments of Jewish culture that have done that. To withdraw and to sort of turn in on themselves, right? You might think of like the Amish, right? To practice their own faith as much as possible and enjoy the good that there is there and then just let God handle the rest. Because, you know, what's the point? If we're so small and so insignificant that nothing we do matters, then why engage in all of that? But then there are other people who read it. And this is a little shout out to, I don't know if Karen Rummel's even in here. This is a Martin Luther take, actually. There are other people, including Martin Luther, who read it and they say, no, I think what this wise teacher is doing is encouraging us to find rest within the current social, political, and relational realities that we live in, right? So it's a perspective that helps us kind of zoom out for a bird's eye view of everything, but not so we can sort of fly away and hide from it, but so that we can come back down into our realities with a sense of God's permanence in the midst of humanity's big story. It's meant to engender a sort of awe of the divine in relation to this wider human story. So I know that some people love to hate on the Dave Matthews band. <laughs> I'm a Gen Xer. I grew up with Satellite and Crash and Trippin' Billy and all of those things and going to Dave Matthews concerts. And so I'm gonna fully own that I still really like the music. And one of their songs, Trippin' Billy, is one of their more famous ones. And it has a famous line that says, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Do you guys know that? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. 
And that's a partial quote. It's actually a direct quote from Ecclesiastes, but it's an expansion on it. And in Ecclesiastes, the author says, so I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be merry. And the prophet Isaiah quotes that, only adds, for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In Ecclesiastes, the author says, the joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of life that God has given them under the sun. Or in another place, he says, go and eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, your husband, your spouse, your partner, whom you love all the days of this fleeting life that God has given you under the sun, all of your fleeting days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. So the author is telling us that to find rest in this life, we must appropriately enjoy the good things that life offers. And sometimes I think when things are genuinely bad, it's not easy to either identify or to stop and enjoy the blessings that we have right here. He says, but if we find ways to do that, life will be better. Right, so I had one of those little moments with my parents last week. I was sitting at their table. My parents both turned 65, so I went down there within two weeks of each other. So we had a little birthday party, and I went down, and I was playing Yahtzee with my dad because it's one of the games that he can still play. So we're playing Yahtzee, and my mom comes over, and we're talking, and we're talking about some heavy things. We're talking about, you know, some of my dad's health issues. One of my sisters is going through, like, the nastiest divorce you could possibly imagine, and I've just been pretty consumed with supporting her and trying to make sure her kids are okay and all of those things. And so we're talking about these heavy issues, and all of a sudden my dad gets distracted by a hummingbird. You know, so we're talking, we're looking out their back porch, and there's this hummingbird feeder, and then all of a sudden both my parents are just captivated. You know, it's like watching the little thing, you know, they look like hovercrafts. You know, their wings are going so fast and we're looking at how beautiful they are and talking about all the different times my parents have seen them. And as we were going through that, I thought, oh my gosh, this is like kind of what I've been thinking about. This is like one of those little moments where in the midst of the heaviness that all of a sudden you can just be like, wow, that's beautiful. We can take a minute. We can take a minute and just like appreciate the beauty of the nature around us. Another moment like that was we took my, my sisters and I took my mom and a couple of her friends out to eat. So my dad, it's not as helpful to take him out at this point, but we were like, gosh, we've never really had money to do anything fancy for mom and she's wonderful. So let's take her out to like a really fancy pants restaurant in Indianapolis. So we wanted to go and have her be able to celebrate her birthday. And so it feels like in the midst of all this stuff going on, we're there to feast and to honor her. And my mom, being who she is, if she was raised by um, you know, a Great Depression baby, my grandma grew up in the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma, and my mom does not like to spend money, not on fancy things especially. So we got there, and you know, she's just looking at like maybe getting an appetizer, and we were like, Mom, we came here prepared to spend some money on you. And there are times in life where you just need to feast, and you need to remember, and you need to honor people. I said, and this is one of those times where I want you to be able to look back, and this is like one of those things you think about in your life, not one of those times where you need to, you know, save your money. So just enjoy. And so she did, and so did everybody, and it felt like one of those moments in Ecclesiastes where it's like, just eat and drink and be merry. Enjoy the abundance that you have right now. And I felt like she did, and it was lovely. 
the author of Ecclesiastes actually shows a little bit of disdain for people who have wealth but who store it up and store it away like misers, not enjoying it. And he would say money in and of itself is not bad, not at all, but you know, Jesus talks about the love of money is the root of all evil. Right? The love of money leads us to do things like feel like we don't have enough, so we store it away or we use it as power over other people. But money of itself isn't bad. And I've come to believe that the most faithful ways to use money, besides for our basic needs, are to be generous, right? to be generous with the poor, and to build relationships, right? to extend hospitality to the people who are around us, to be able to enjoy life with the people we surround ourselves with. The wise teacher says, go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. And I think one of the keys in this verse are the qualifiers, right? You eat with gladness and you drink with a joyful heart. That there's an element of being able to receive the goodness of, of God like this as a gift from God to us with happiness and with gratitude. And part of the benefit of zooming out for perspective is learning to be grateful for the blessings that can be found in the vapor, right? That, yeah, people come and people go and work comes and work goes, but thank the good Lord above for the blessings in the midst of it all. So I was reading a column to kind of close up here. I was reading a column from the New York Times a couple of days ago, and they have a regular weekly column called Modern Love. Some of you may read it. I, I have from time to time. So it's a recurring column where people send in their stories about what it is to be in love in this day and age in America and all of the ups and downs of that. And so the columnist this week was telling a story about how she slowly fell in love with a man who had been her friend. And so it sounds like they'd gotten to know each other as friends and then eventually as lovers. And then she wrote this. She said, not long after that, he set off on a cycling tour overseas. And my expectations of commitment were low. So I was surprised to receive messages every day from remote villages that had weak reception and invitations to connect on Skype. And he sent me links to hit songs from the 80s, Don't You Forget About Me, and pictures of luminous markets at night. And so we snapped photos of handwritten letters and emailed them to each other. That's kind of lovely. She said, like postcards twisted by time travel. And so she talks about how that really solidified their relationship. He came home and they spent many more months together and they were happy until one day he broke up with her. And the title of her story was The 12-Hour Goodbye That Started Everything, which kind of sums up, well, one, the length of their goodbye, but also all of the pain that she endured as they went through it. It turned out she just loved him more than he loved her. And she was saying, never, ever, ever let someone spend 12 hours breaking up with you because it's just torture. So she said, after spending a year in therapy, she said she was trying to really grieve and to move past her hopes and expectations of a relationship that she felt like for the first time was something that was really, really wonderful and life-giving for her. And so she was just saying, gosh, I, I wonder why I can't just forget this connection that I had. She's like, I feel like a healthy person. I've got my dream job. I go and I exercise. And yet, I feel like this guy comes to my mind every now and then. So she asked her therapist, she said, why do I think about this person still? And the therapist said, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about getting over it and letting it go, which is what I would think it would be. If I'm going to see a therapist for a breakup, I'm like, you better be helping me get over and let go. <laughs> Sorry, well, Rachel's a therapist too. <laughs> 
And so this author, she said, I looked down at my hands and I considered how this could possibly be about anything else. And her therapist said, it's about honoring what happened. She said, you met a person who awoke something in you and a fire ignited. And the work is to be grateful. Grateful every day that someone crossed your path and left a mark on you. And that isn't to ignore the pain that does need healing and it doesn't ignore the, you know, the work sometimes that we have to do on relationships that didn't work to figure out, you know, are there, did I contribute to some ways that set up, you know, some pain for myself, et cetera, et cetera. But I think there was something really special in that, that in all of that pain and stuff that you're like, man, there was really blessing to be found in the midst of all of that conflict. The work, in part, is to be grateful for the good that was there and to honor it. And so as I read this story, I thought, man, this really sums up Ecclesiastes. You know, the work of life isn't like giving up and letting go of all the things. It's like work comes, work goes, money comes and money goes, rulers rise, rulers fall, comical, self-absorbed, dangerously immature presidents and kings rise and come to power and fall from grace and those things are real and there's pain and work to do. There's truly nothing new under the sun. But in the midst of all of this, part of the work is to be grateful. And the part of the work is to find goodness and blessing and to be thankful for those. And part of the work is to eat and drink and be merry with those that we love. Not so we check out of the complications of life, but so we can continue the work of justice and healing that is part of the larger story of justice and healing. Right? The vapor of humanity and events, it's like the living stream that is flowing through history from generation to generation. And it's fleeting to us because we are a small part of it. But the underlying narrative that Ecclesiastes is telling us is that there is actually a good God who is providing meaning in the midst of that vapor. That God's giving meaning to it all. And so you might say it's a sacred and spiritual practice to stop and to smell the roses sometimes. Right? So we're going to end here with a little meditation. We often do two to three minutes of silence or guided meditation. And invite you to silence, but people and babies make noise, so it may not be entirely quiet. And this morning, I mean, we'll take a little bit of silence, but I think what I'd like to do is for us to meditate on some familiar words from Ecclesiastes. Let's just calm our minds. You can close your eyes if you'd like. You can place out your hands. ask you to imagine a situation that maybe is causing you a little bit of stress in your life. I know I can come up with like five right now. But just focus on one. invite you that as you're focusing on maybe the faces of the people that are part of that situation that you picture those and then just imagine zooming out almost so that like you're looking at the entirety of earth or gosh if you've got a great imagination even further out that you're kind of looking at that in perspective of time and space 
Notice how you're picturing it. And hold that picture in your mind as I read some words from Ecclesiastes out. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to search and there's a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What do the workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of their toil. This is the gift of God. I invite you to zoom back in, back into your life here, and imagine yourself eating and drinking with your closest friends and loved ones, with the people who give you joy. Imagine your favorite foods and drinks. So God, we give you thanksgiving. We give you thanks and praise for the blessings that you've given us amidst all of the toils and strife of life. And we thank you for good friends. We thank you for loved ones. We thank you for good food and good drink. We thank you for the ability to come and to worship you freely on Sunday mornings. We thank you for bringing us joy in the midst of the everyday. And Lord, we invite your presence into those small moments, those like hummingbird moments that I had with my parents through the weeks as we savor and enjoy this good life that you have given us. We offer all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.